Dodger Stadium, places like that. We used to dream of this, you know, having people in the audience like Barbara Streisand and, and watching your show and loving it. You know, I mean, this, these are fantasies. These are all dreams, you know. And to have a 707, black with red bottom and our three heads on the tail and all this, you're going, whoa, <laughs> you know, and even getting bomb threats, it was great, you know, because if you weren't important, they wouldn't bomb you, you know. <laughs> Good evening and welcome to this fourth edition of Midnight Video with your hosts, me, Jim Hall. And me, Phil Walsh. Tonight, in space, no one can hear your franchise heading straight to DVD. We attempt to solve the past, present and future of the Lament Configuration puzzle box in the starbound fourth instalment of Clive Barker's horror saga, it's Hellraiser Bloodline. Then we thumb through 92 biographies of those unfortunate souls affected by a violent unknown event. Avian obsessions, transmogrification, nomenclature, and linguistic mischief in Peter Greenaway's magnum opus, The Falls. And back in 1967, a Liverpoolian four-piece released one of the most influential rock albums of all time. Eleven years later, Peter Frampton, Donald Pleasance, the Bee Gees, Aerosmith, and Frankie Howard were among the varying vocal talents bringing it to the big screen in budget-busting fantasy musical Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Okay, so the world's changed somewhat since we last got together. For the better, maybe. Well, Osama Bin Laden, gone. Probably. Well, it's appropriate because we're about to sit through a bunch of Dolph Lundgren movies, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> it all sounds like one of those kind Not of... for the podcast, by the way. No, this is... Extracurricular. This is what we do in our spare time anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah, Osama, who Donny just friended us on Facebook. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a shame. Yeah. But he might... He's, his Facebook page or profile might still yeah. be there. So. Well, he wasn't very impressed with our Howard the Duck um, review, but he did have some suggestions for films he wanted us to cover. Um, Condor Man. Oh, I'd be well up for that. Uh, Cannonball Run, he was quite a big fan of. Oh, I'm not too keen. Not no? Too keen. No. Well, we'll never get to find I'm out. scared of moustaches. <laughs> You're scared of moustaches. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, this is a roundabout way of saying we do have a Facebook presence now. Um, we do. That's Midnight how bang Video. Up, that's how bang up to date we are. Yeah, just have to search for Midnight Video and we'll pop up yeah. with our lovely little yellow logo. Which yes. I've got to say courtesy of my darling wife who spent a couple of Sundays um, slaving away over it um, <laughs> but yes we have a Facebook site now so yeah check us out and we uh, the important thing is we do have a discussion thread on there on films you would like us to cover which we're you know it's great to have feedback anyway but it's it's great for us to hear of, of films that we've uh, not come across before so yeah, yeah um, we've got a very long show ahead of us so uh, we won't gonna we're not gonna ramble too much now so no. uh, should we get on with it Yep, keep this yep. brief and get Okey on with it. The world is ruled by reason. We've even got rid of God. And if there is no heaven, then it follows reasonably that there is no hell. Released in 1996, Hellraiser Bloodline begins in the 22nd century, where brilliant scientist Dr. Paul Merchant constructs a mysterious space station, invokes the infernal Cenobites, and plans for the demon's final destruction. The film then hops back in time some 400 years to reveal not only the building of the original Cenobite summoning lament configuration puzzle box by one of Merchant's ancestors, but also the creation of the ravishing female demon Angelique when the box's original owner, a sinister magician, invests the device with occult properties. The box, Angelique and Hellraiser favourite Pinhead continue to haunt Merchant's lineage down through the ages, with much of the film's action set in contemporary America before returning to the stars where Merchant and a disbelieving military team must face the legions of hell one last time. So, Hellraiser 4. On um, the fourth show. On the fourth show, very apt. Probably a bit strange of us to jump in at the fourth one, but I think we're kind of hoping that people are more than familiar with um, at least one of the others. To be fair, I don't think the fourth... The fourth one is just a big kind of exposition film of the box, to some degree, I think. Yeah, um... 
it doesn't relate heavily to the first, second, or third. Well, I'm glad you said that because yeah, the, the weird thing with this, you, you say the first three films are things that people listening to this will probably be familiar with. Um, I was familiar with those films. I watched them again recently. I didn't know this one existed even. Um, <laughs> I was faintly aware that Hellraiser did go to a sort of straight to DVD franchise, although I think this was did have some kind of brief cinematic. It was the last theatrical yeah. uh, release, but yeah. I thought it was going to be a real um, a real cheapy kind of sequel. But it does have it does have uh, direct connections with the earlier films. You've still got Pete Atkins writing it, Doug yeah. Bradley as Pinhead, Clive Barker's happy enough for his name to be on it as an executive producer. As you say, it doesn't have many direct connections story-wise, and this could really stand as the first film you watch of the franchise. In fact, I would almost recommend it as being the first one. Yeah, uh, I'm inclined to agree. Yeah, it's. Um, do you think that's important? That we do you think viewers need to know the history of the box? No. Um, something that impressed me with this, in fact, is the opening scene where you have uh, this character of Paul Merchant. It's in space, which is kind of a, it's still an unusual setting for a, a horror movie. The opening shot does have this robotic uh, skeleton, which is more than a nod towards the Terminator mm. design with the red eyes, solving this puzzle box uh, by remote control. You've got the, the, the character of the scientist, Paul Merchant, controlling it with what looked like virtual reality gloves or something. Even if you've not seen Hellraiser before, I think that would strike you as such an unusual... Um, juxtaposition might be a grand word but yeah the, the ancient looking box in this robot and then it does go back and explain the background of the the box and the mythos and i think it does a really good job of it yeah because at the moment in production is um prometheus the prequel to alien, the aliens yeah which ridley scott's quadrilogy yeah which ridley scott's helming so I'm wondering if maybe that's going to be in a similar kind of vein, you know. Uh, Probably with a bigger budget. Well, yeah, a m much bigger budget because I'm I've been decrying it, it, it because I don't really I'm not that interested in the background of um, these characters that they, well they're not even characters are they? It's this is like Alien space or Oh, sorry, yeah, in in um, in the Alien. Okay. I like the mystery. Mm -hmm. in, the mystery is there, whereas. You know, I don't feel the need to know about these. Um, you don't finding. need to get the mythos, and yeah. you're, you're right there. One of because I watched Hellraiser recently. I knew this would happen. We're going to talk about probably the Hellraiser films, the previous ones we <laughs> go through. Watching Hellraiser again now, I did. There's it does have a lot of shortcomings with acting and dialogue, maybe, but there's still some really good stuff to recommend about it. And part of that, I think, is it has an unusual setup and it hints at the structures of hell in it. You know, you've got this main femme fatale story, but then the Cenobites are scarcely in it, but they're hinted that there's some there's something going on with them. Mm. Um, that there's a hierarchy in hell, quite what the rules that bound them are. When the second Hellraiser movie, Hellbound, came out, I remember really enjoying it when I was younger because it didn't just do this first film again. It really investigated the mythos. Watching it this time round, Hellbound, I thought it was a disastrous idea because it doesn't work as a, hell, um, a horror movie in its own right. No. It's only really going to appeal if you're already a fan of the first film. It's like a glossary at the back of a book. It's not a story in itself. And the same goes, I suppose you could say, for the the Star Wars prequels even right. they're not adventures in their own right they're just illuminating they're, they're giving answers to, that we didn't need about exactly. the first few films so um, but yeah. do you think the, do you think Bloodline well you could say it's blatantly fallen into that trap was yeah. it enough to hold your attention and think yeah no I is, think this yeah. seriously I think if you would not watched Hellraiser before any of those films you could sit and watch this and you're kind of it would hopefully be slightly confusing the opening that you've got this clash of ancient and modern things then it zips way back 400 years to this sort of market hard figure with his little herpes I think it and there it explains enough of the setup although it still doesn't go into that greater detail it just no. says it's a box for summoning demons it doesn't then have to go into exactly who the Cenobites are how they came to be it hints at that in a way that Hellbound didn't it sort of went off on did something fairly useless I think I mean it had a fairly troubled um, production, they had Kevin Yeager, the original director walked off um, I don't know how, not 
not that early because I think possibly in oh no he hadn't finished had he finished filming it I or? don't think it's because Joe Chappelle who yeah. took over who actually created these bookends that's right yeah with. he did the framing the narrative framing didn't he so I presume that's the entire space set no because I've read the original script Peter oh, Atkins wow, original um, script yeah that's I, real dedication yeah, to, to well, read a Pete Atkins script <laughs> it was it wasn't too bad actually I, I just whizzed through it on Saturday morning and it's intri- it was a much more um, three act structure mm-hmm. obviously um but the beginning was a lot more extended in the Paris in the seventh, eighteenth century. Mm-hmm. There was a lot more um, characters there, and it only changed as another character change in the last part of, in the space part. But mm-hmm. it's pretty much the same movie. There's not massive uh, differences between the original script and what turned up on screen. Because, yeah, this is actually credited to Alan Smithy, who I'm sure everyone knows is a (laughs) pseudonym that gets slapped on when a director doesn't want to completely wash their hands of a project. This is an example of um, a film that there, yeah, it was created with a lot of uh, friction between people, but certainly for my part, I think it ends up as a really good little movie. Yeah, (laughs) I'm, I'm exactly the same. I was very pleasantly surprised by it. It's low budget, but it's inventive, which is what. The well, films the funny like. thing is that Jaeger walked off because, well, one thing was the Cenobites appeared. A pinhead appeared a lot earlier than he wanted. Yeah, he wanted uh, it about the forty-minute mark. Yeah, um, which it doesn't overly bother me in the film. I don't think it makes that much difference. But he also wanted a lot more gore and blood because he comes from a makeup effects background, and. I thought it was pretty gory and bloody anyway. I think it delivers the goods there. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think of specific sequences without spoiling them, as always. Um, well, there's there's a creature yeah. in the... Well, there are a couple of creatures. The main sort of dog-like Cenobite, yeah. which is obviously an animatronic dog. Um, it is. It looks kind of like one of the effects from the thing when the huskies are kind of... Yes, yeah. Together. But I thought that was really well handled because when it first appears, you're not sure what it is. I think they really managed to be um, show some restraint in just it's something There's on some the periphery. Sort of concealing. And, yeah. yeah. And this time round, I'm sure people are familiar with what happens in these films when the box is opened and um, hell is unleashed. The door, the walls crack open, and there's something that looks like pubic hair. <laughs> Or fibres on the reverse side, and it's not—they don't really go into what that is, but it, it managed to create a little bit of an uncomfortable feeling. Mm. I thought. So I think things like that were really well done, and there were other bizarre touches, like those twin brothers as security men. Yeah, they were an addition. Yeah, they weren't in the original script. Because yeah, ultimately there's a reason why they're there. But when they initially appear, you're just thinking, why are these two security men twin brothers? <laughs> and going back to the sort of films we reviewed last time, Static, it wasn't almost a David Lynch touch. It's a sort of thing he might... I thought of um, Terminator 2, you know, the twins in there who are security guards mm. who are in Gremlins 2 as well, I think, yeah. actually. Oh, yeah. But they were like a device, you know, they needed that, didn't they, for mm. when the T-1000 transforms into them. But yeah. this was... Yeah, I was very confused. As to, is this just some weird, like, misjudged comedy moment? Because, yeah. I mean, it is... A lower budget film. Um, I know Hellraiser, the original Hellraiser, had a budget of less than a million dollars, I think, um, rather than pounds. But it looks really great. Well, this was actually the, I think I read it was the best performing in terms of budget to gross. It was, yeah. But, you know, I think they've not shied away from, yeah, hopping around the centuries, the the, the scenes in 18th century Paris. You can tell they've probably only got one set and a few costumes, but they don't really need more than that. I think it's. It's great that they decided to do that rather than spending the money elsewhere. Mm. And just the fact that it does hop from the 18th century to contemporary America and then back to the back to the future, <laughs> it really gives it. Uh, given it's only an 80 minute film, it just feels like a real. It's whirlwind. quite bold in scope, isn't it? Yeah, you know, they're, um, they're really unafraid of tackling it. It came across to me anyway. Mm. I mean, obviously there was the script changes, but. You can see why it was done almost. Well, I can after reading yeah. it. I can see why they had to sort of restrain themselves. And you think that's a re- an improvement? What they've in some ways, I think it is. I mm. I do. I would like to have seen a bit more of the eighteenth uh, century, where they had an idea for having a lot more like Harlequin like characters, and mm. there was more glimpses into hell and stuff. So, whereas I well. It's a bit unfair because we don't know what that would have been like. But no. for me, I feel having seen Hellbound, where I think they went too far into that direction, I think it's good that they yeah. just hinted at it. Something I think is notable about this, like I said, in earlier Hellraiser films, I 
felt they were often let down by some of the key performances and in fairness to those actors they were often being asked to come out with even for horror films uh, quite absurd dialogue yeah um this i think the acting was really pretty good in it especially the main guy in it um bruce ramsey who plays these three versions of um well paul merchant in the in the future but yeah, yeah. philip le merchant john merchant and then eventually paul yeah as usual he's he's at the beginning when he's this uh, futuristic scientist he's asked to deliver a lot of exposition but I think he did a really good job of it. It is difficult to read out dialogue like that and sound convincing. Yeah, I, I was... And he looks a lot like Udo Kier, doesn't he? <laughs> he does, yeah, in some lights. I, yeah, I was he's thinking got those that. eyes, or Tim Curry, maybe. Maybe Tim Curry, yeah, he's got those. Um, and Tom Hulse in some lights, I thought, okay. a little. But yeah, he was in Killing Zoe and Alive as well, which I've seen, but I couldn't place him in those films. Yeah, I thought he did a good job. I just felt with Atkins' script... Is that he just looks forward to the pin headlines, which get reused over and over. Yeah, you know, we have such shite, yeah, <laughs> such shite to show you. <laughs> um, which I've never liked. I've never liked that idea in anything where the writers decide what are the catchphrases and wheel them out to sort of wave at the fans. Almost, mm. I think it's kind of lazy, and it's also a hangover from Freddy Krueger wisecracks. I think. We've got some new Cenobites here. We probably shouldn't say too much about them. Um, but the main, the main new addition here is Angelique, this uh, this demon princess, as she's referred to throughout it. Did she work for you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not to get too lecherous, but if you are, she was um, very pretty lady. Yeah. If you're casting for someone who's going to tempt you to hell, then uh, I think they did a good job. Valentina Vargas. Yeah. Who. I knew from the name of the rose when she basically raped Christian Slater as a monk. Hmm. In, uh, There's in probably the some fan fiction to suggest this is part of the <laughs> franchise. But yeah, no, it was uh, it was a really good performance. I thought, yeah, she uh, she pulled me in. And the other, all oh, the other, the other main actress in it, of course. Yeah, uh, Kim Myers, who I recognised immediately. As Meryl Streep, yes, but she isn't Meryl Streep, obviously. Of course, she was going to appear in a straight to DVD sequel to Hell. <laughs> um, no, but I watched not too long ago, and I think you might have done yeah. Never Sleep Again. The um, Street. Um, it's like a th three-hour, four-hour, possibly even four hours. Yes, um, documentary, exhausting documentary, exhaustive, exhaustive, yeah. and exhausting. I found. <laughs> um, but yeah, there was an interview with the director of Elm Street too, who said. Kim Myers was chosen for her role because she resembled Meryl Streep so much, which I always found quite amusing. And the yeah, Mel, I mean, the Meryl Streep of horror movies. Yeah. <laughs> and the other Cenobites, we've kind of mentioned the this dog, the thing, dog one. which I think was good. It got little chattery teeth. Mm, yeah, yeah, I liked I liked the dog a lot. Um, I think it's called the dog chatterer in the script <laughs> <laughs> instead like of the, the dog whisperer. I'm gonna say the horse whisperer. <laughs> dog chatterer <laughs> but yeah I, I enjoyed the uh, the dog chatterer I thought that was quite an effective it it was good to see something that wasn't just a, a human or another humanoid sort of shape centered by but I'm a, I've just got to say that I knew about this long probably before you did because I've only heard of it in the last month or so I saw the ending of it on TV um, maybe a couple of years after it came out unfortunately <laughs> but it was the ending that really I was really gobsmacked by it I was like wow that's really unexpected I'm not going to spoil yeah, it now it's very sudden yeah and it, well obviously it doesn't come out of nowhere if you watch the whole film but you, you, I found myself thinking how did they get to this why and then I just forgot about it over time and I'm so glad that we've got around to it because now it makes a lot more sense but it is, it is um, it's quite spectacular in its in its ideas maybe the uh, execution isn't as grand as a, a, a higher budgeted film would be. Well, yeah, um, something we've not really touched on. Given this is set in space and it's made in 96, I thought the space effects were perfectly good. The only one that I thought let it down was when the robot skeleton is handling the box and you can tell it's got very basic CGI to animate the box as yeah. it um, realigns itself. But generally, I think it does a really good job. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I've got to say... I mean, I'm curious to watch some of the others now because there's about ten of them in total. Nine, nine. Uh, and I the think they're talking one. about doing another witch 
maybe a reboot even rather than just another well the ninth one doesn't have Doug Bradley as Pinhead and it was made for $300,000 in two weeks and it was only released in one theatre and there's no it's not going to come on DVD as far as we know and you're remembering all this off the top of your head yeah. seriously I'm not looking at notes <laughs> no <for this. laughs> wow but yeah um, no I'm curious to see the rest of them now so well um, we've got Inferno that, that was a double pack I got Bloodline and Inferno in a double pack oh great so, so you've got yeah. that hanging around so Inferno is a... And have you watched that yet? I haven't, no. Okay, so that's uh, something to look forward to. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and then, of course, there's the Cenobites, who are age ageless, timeless. Um, throw in a, a healthy smattering of sadomasochism, and um, Bob's your uncle, I think. So from a puzzle box of violent fantasies to an unknown violent event that caused fantastical puzzlement... On the night of June 12th of the VUE, Carlos's wife suffered a stroke and Carlos transferred his affection to a turkey. Released in 1980, Peter Greenaway's The Falls is a documentary built from the meticulously researched and detailed biographies of 92 victims of the VUE, or Violent Unknown Event, a global apocalypse which the film never directly discusses. While a directory of all the VUE's victims was compiled, the film focuses on a sample whose names begin with the letters F-A-L-L. Symptoms of the VUE include immortality, strange mutations with victims' bodies taking on bird-like characteristics, an obsession with flight, dreams of water, and spontaneous fluency in a whole new lexicon of languages which didn't previously exist but are known to fellow victims. Referencing his previous short films and anticipating future projects, the falls is Greenway's pay into encyclopedias, dictionaries and directories. Filled with humorous swipes at institutions and humanity's arrogance, The Falls combines archive footage, photographs, artwork and specially filmed footage with a variety of deadpan narratives underscored by a soundtrack including Michael Nyman, Sid Barrett era Pink Floyd and Brian Eno. So hard to remember now, but Peter Greenaway in the late 80s and early 90s was a really big figure in um, British cinema, sort of British culture generally. I remember he was even the punchline to a few sketches. I mean, you're probably too young to remember that, but... Uh... Yeah, probably, but I look for his stuff on eBay now and again, and there's an edition of Melody Maker with him Bloody on the front hell. cover. <laughs> Telling you what he thought of the Stone Roses? <laughs> I don't know. I had no idea what the issue is about, but yeah, it's obviously an interview with him. So it must have been Cook Thief time. Cook Thief was eighty nine. Yeah. Yeah, it would have been around then. Yeah. So that's how big a figure he was. <laughs> but yeah, now I mean, he's even then he was a very divisive figure because a lot of people uh, really warmed to him. He's got a very specific style of filmmaking. This is going back. Even if you'd not seen his films at the time, you'd probably seen clips of them. You kind of understood the gist of what his style of filmmaking was and he gets up a lot of people's noses um, it'd be, you'd have a lot of sympathy with people who thought he was a really pretentious git and it's weird to then go back and watch this film from 1980 which uh, I think we were sort of talking about it amongst ourselves has a really mm. it's just absolutely uh, smothered in very dry humour yeah it is I mean it's suffocating yes <laughs> no that's a good word for it yeah um, it's incredibly dense this film insanely dense like because I'll let you into a secret but yeah I do try to make some notes when we watch these films um, but I just had to give up whilst I was watching because it's so exhaustive um, I've said exhaustive twice that would be your watchword <laughs> yeah it's literally like reading a dictionary uh, or an encyclopedia and trying to retain that information but this has got Greenaway's stamp on it yeah because I mean even though we've just done the introduction to explain the setup of it I think we need to convey this is constant talking isn't it it's mostly done with uh, a series of narrators delivering these incredibly dense stories in usually a couple of minutes if that which are so full of um narrative um puns i don't know what else to talk about <laughs> <laughs> but they also that it's uh it's like a it's it, a clever way of uh confusing the viewer as well because there are there's a lot of the um, entries mm -hmm. uh, where there's three people talking at once because they'll have someone translating one of the languages like that, yeah. and um, so, 
you get to moments like that where it is literally just being like being smacked in the face. But then even it'll take a step back, and if you have a, an entry like that where you have a member of the commission who are investigating this event reading out to camera or explaining something, the next, the very next entry may be something about that person who we've just seen, and it kind of goes like a Chinese puzzle box. It kind yes, of, um, yeah. goes backwards and backwards. Yeah, like I said, Peter Greenaway, a very divisive figure and one people find insufferably pretentious. And I do think his his work now, I mean, I'm not even familiar with what he's doing now. The film he's still probably most famous for is The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover. Um, Maybe The I, Draftsman's Contract as Possibly well. that. That broke him out at the big time. But The Cook, The Thief was very controversial at the time. But it was also, it told a really coherent story. Uh, it looked beautiful and it still holds up for me. And then he went off and did Prospero's books, which is oof, indulging his obsessions. And I, I, I think you'd have to be... It would appeals to a very minority audience, which, you know, that's absolutely his prerogative. Um, but it, but to, in a way, though, it's a direct link from The Falls, where it's an information overload, mm-hmm. except Prospero's books is literally, like, visually, it's too much for the eyes to take, isn't yeah. it? Uh, I think Sasha Vierney, who he'd worked with for years, yeah. said, look, you can't do this. Like, <laughs> people can't handle it. But yeah, I mean, to try and get back to the falls, it's very interesting what he was doing. I mean, uh, it's most basic, isn't it? He's, like we said in the intro, he's, it's like a love letter to encyclopedias and directories. I'd say a hate letter, because I know his background was working for the Central Office of Information, this sort of little branch of the British uh, Civil Service their job being to create these little films which explain the British way of life to foreigners. Mm. Um, And he was aware that the statistics and things that cropped up in those were absolutely useless. And it's all about how pointless it is to concentrate on the smaller picture yeah and never take on the oh yeah picture. it's like it's human folly isn't yeah, it yeah i mean he said a lot of it's the arrogance of anyone trying to catalogue anything because it's mm. never going to be complete so yeah part of the narrative here is this conceit that you have 92 biographies laid out in alphabetical order and there is if you watch the entire thing if you manage to watch the entire thing various plots come across in it don't they um, there's a conspiracy involving this white van that appears and disappears at various points, which, you know, if they bothered to look at all of the entries, a story would have emerged there. But mm. it's it's almost like solving a Sudoku puzzle or a crossword <laughs> that you have to fit these things in. And that's quite exciting, I think. Mm. Certainly the first time I watched that, I was really impressed by things like that. And even <laughs> as strange as this film sounds, it still does have almost a twist ending to it uh, where the final few entries make you look back on things in a slightly different light. Yeah. Um, something I want to ask you, because you have seen this before, um, I first saw this um, almost when I was finishing college. Um, <laughs> it wouldn't be too far to say, in the same way that a lot of people watched Top Gun and wanted to become fighter pilots, I watched this and thought, God, being a librarian seems such a sexy profession. <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of a big a formative thing for me. Um, watching it now, the thing that amazed me was I just I couldn't believe that back then when I was 22 I could even follow this film. And that's more of a, an attack at me now. I couldn't follow this now. There was so much information I couldn't keep up with it. And um, Whereas first time I watched it in this three hour chunk in a cinema and was really excited by all of these little puzzles and clues and solving them as it was going along mm. and having to retain an awful lot of information. This time, and actually the last few times I've tried to watch it, I was zoning out all the time. I just couldn't keep up with it. Um, yeah, that this is probably like the third or fourth time I've watched it. And I was reading up about it, and Greenway said that you should approach it, or his idea was you can approach it like an encyclopedia. You can dip into certain stories. And on the BFI disc that I've got, the DVD, you can choose which... Yeah, each entry, entry has to a, go to. a chapter, so you can... But I just watched an hour and a half or two hours of it in one go, and then I decided for the last bit, I jumbled up the entries, and it made it quite interesting in a different way. It kept me on my toes a bit more. Um, I did... I mean, it's three and a half hours long. It's, or is it three hours, 15? It's, yeah, it's three hours, six minutes, I think. Oh, okay. I mean, that, tells you, that tells you how precisely <laughs> I was counting down to the end. <laughs> But I don't think I've ever understood it whenever I've watched it or picked up on that well, many it's new things. Not understanding, but no, just being um, able to follow what's meant to be happening from one. Yeah. Because you're 
even in the course of one two minute story you might be told so much and again because everyone's name begins with F-A-double-L it's awfully difficult keeping track of who's who because you do get references back to earlier characters and things but yeah it's so dense um, it reminded me of I, I don't know if you've read any Thomas Pynchon no I haven't but there's a book of his The Crying of Lot 49 which is quite a slim book it's about 150 pages but the plot of that again has uh, a character who's maybe stumbled onto a conspiracy but at various points she's not sure if she really has or whether this is a practical joke that she's taken part in um, has been involved in or whether she's just imagining things because the more information you have patterns emerge mm. and again with that crying of lot 49 150 odd pages you should be able to read it in a couple of hours but oh man it takes days <laughs> you have to keep you have to really let the information sink well another literary comparison is Lanark by Alistair Gray which right. I've um, not read that has so. a similar kind of thing with lots of footnotes and strange topography mm. and cross-referencing it's yeah. got that other it's and again he's from an artistic background yes yeah it's it, it, it's the kind of thing that you you can't approach as you would any other film. You know, you you have to sort of I don't want to say prepare yourself for it. Well, I don't, I don't think that's too off the mark. No, it's, no. Uh, <laughs> it sounds a bit well pretentious, which yeah. is quite kind of apt for Green. You can't get away from that word with him, though. <laughs> I have to say, I looked on IMDb to see what genres it came under, and it came under drama and sci-fi, and I'm amazed that comedy isn't there because it is one of the funniest jokes or funniest films that yeah. I've ever seen if you're if you can keep up with it well um, yeah because yeah even making these grand comparisons with Thomas Pynchon actually the thing when I first watched this I thought it had a real feeling of deadpan Monty Python specifically things like the funniest joke in the world sketch the way you have a narration there while these absurd things are happening on screen or even upper class twit of the year <laughs> but then watching it more recently um I know you know this, the, the Chris Morris sketch show Brass Eye, which again created a really surreal world. The initial jokes in that were getting celebrities to endorse fake charities for these really surreal causes. But if you watch Brass Eye several times, it's, I mean, something like celebrities reading out appeals on heavy electricity that falls out of pylons and flattens people, <laughs> like invisible lead soup or this drug that makes people throw up their own pelvises <laughs> which is very much what this feels like yes, the yeah. absurd things that are happening to people in it but they're read out in a completely flat way which makes them even more yeah, funny yeah it's real BBC narrative isn't it well, yeah I, oh, the, the guys narrating it are fantastic in that real home service because um, they have the thing that I liked which I, I, I wrote down but I wasn't too sure because it is a documentary but it's a mockumentary mm. and for the first sort of 20 or so entries you just have the narrators but then you start seeing the narrators they start yeah, they're, they're filming them and, and I was I was starting to question is that breaking the fourth wall but it's a documentary anyway yeah. you know, it's it's a brilliant sort of twist and yeah. play you know this is it he's seen as this really po-faced ass now isn't he mm. and indeed searching around on YouTube for clips that we might be able to use in this I was expecting him to come up with some real nuggets because I'm used to seeing interviews with him Greenaway when he's just really full of himself and here he's got such a sense of humour and like I was saying with Prospero's books it's entirely up to him what he wants to do with his career you know more power to him but I can't help watching this and The Cook the Thief and thinking I wanted to see what this guy would have done if he'd tried to steer his filmmaking career towards something a little more yeah, cause he not had a conventional kind of... but palatable yeah he had a bit of a fallout where he was very vocal at saying that cinema's dead he's been saying he? that for 20 years well yeah. and still making films so mm. you know it's that's probably a shame I suppose but he's got such a, an amazing body of work from the 70s to to Cook Thief basically <laughs> we're going to have a cut off point <laughs> to 89 um, yeah I mean you were just talking about finding clips before I'd love to find some kind of clip it's not documented unfortunately when he was making this the idea behind it was influenced by John Cage's indeterminacy yeah 
the John Cage the musician of course and Greenaway did a short film about him and said to him at one point oh I've made this documentary The Falls which is 92 stories based on your uh, stories or your indeterminacy um, Because he counted up all the entries on the back of the sleeve. And John Cage turned around and said, well, there's only 90. Yeah. And apparently that laughed in his face. He found it very humorous, didn't he? No, I remember because, yeah, I don't have that documentary anymore. But I remember Greenaway saying, he was vastly amused that I'd wasted several years of my life (laughs) on this mathematical (laughs) error. Obviously, there's a lot of referencing back to his previous works, mm-hmm. um, his shorts and that. But there's also uh, a preempting preempting? Is that the yeah, right word? Yeah, preempting foreshadowing. foreshadowing is better, yeah. Of future works such as Drowning by Numbers specifically. Yeah, I mean if you know that film, the main character or characters in that are, are three generations called Sissy Culpits. We're almost on to Hellraiser Bloodline now, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> sure uh uh, Joan Plowright would have been great as a Cenobite um, oh. but yeah I, I get the feeling that Greenaway probably had written a lot of, or had the ideas for these films for a long time and so he was able to germ them the hair mm. seed them um, but yeah Sissy Colpitts uh, turns up specifically yeah. as but, Propina Phallux I think the name is in... it does also include lots of Greenaway's previous short films and the source material and I know you've seen all of those because you've got the um, actually something we should explain you can get hold of The Falls on DVD but it's part of Greenaway Early Works Volume 2 isn't it? It is I don't yeah. think it's just called that If you'll, no. you'll probably find it anyway but um, you can get it individually yeah, yeah. Um, but you've seen all of those earlier works do you find how where would you place this in uh, did you find this as satisfying as some of those other ones because again some of those are really infuriating his early ones yeah are... I mean Vertical Features remake which a lot of people seem to like I, I didn't like it that much it's not much fun to sit through no. I, I don't even know it's worth us explaining what the setup of that is probably not yeah. <laughs> but that, that's on the same disc as The Falls if you do buy it um but a walk through age that's, I, that holds a place in my heart. I think that's, I do really like that. That again uses um, not found footage. It's it's basically rostrum shots over a series of very peculiar maps, aren't they? Sort of uh, with this narration. The one I really like though is Water Rackets, um, mm. which again um, is I think it's even the same narrator, but telling this peculiar. To call it Lord of the Rings would be a bit off, but it's this strange fantasy epic, but relayed over shots of water and riverbanks, uh, which I think is really good. And it's quite—it's nice and short. It's only about fifteen minutes at a push. Um, so this is often considered a science fiction film. Well, I don't think that would be too wide of the mark. It is a really great piece of fantasy. maybe more than static. Oh God, yeah. More <laughs> but hey, we're referencing our own earlier works now. Um, obviously, this is a low budget movie you don't actually get to see prosthetics or special effects you're you have this described to you that the characters now have six chambered hearts or hollow bones or whatever and can physically or there's drawings isn't there well that's uh, that's one of the things that crops up through there's a standardized kind of outline of a human figure which has uh, a penis a and pen. testicles a penis and testicles with a cross through it if it's female i thought that was a lovely <laughs> yeah. touch um but i I really like that. Just the fact that it wasn't it wasn't held back by oh I've got this fantastic story to tell, but there's no way we could even do a, a, a sort of low budget version of it. It doesn't really need to go into those, and it almost it is that old thing of the show don't tell, but sometimes there's also it's better to evoke something in someone's mind. So I almost like the idea that this is after this catastrophic event has happened, but people are just taking it as a completely normal thing. Mm, yeah. They're treating it as it's an everyday thing that they can. Um, they can fly unaided off the top of buildings or at pop concerts, wasn't it? There's one the guy from there's a lot of bird puns in it, so he's in Phoenix, Arizona when this happens. There's a, I actually it just reminds me of a film I saw not too long ago by um Thomas Vintner, I think, the guy who started the dogma movement with Lars von Trier, who did a, a Hollywood well, an American movie called Um It's All About Love, which has a people there's some catastrophic events happening in the not too distant future and people are defi- um, defying gravity is that okay. you know, seems a bit strong. yeah but they're like 
way up you know they're yeah. almost flying and stuff and I kept thinking about that okay. but everyone was taking it in their stride in the film there was these massive changes um, happening but the central story was this basic love story and everything just seemed to be going on and people were just getting on with it but I think maybe in sort of Greenway's world it's Greenway's world it's more of a well this is just how it is you know <laughs> it is what yeah. it is and also it says something about the mentality of the bureaucrats compiling this they're not really interested in the human value of it it's more about yeah uh, just uh, the, cataloging like the, uh, the changes one of the establishments was the BFI whom, oh yes whom Greenaway was well yeah uh, the British Film Institute but here the Bird Facilities Bird Facilities Investments yes, so. <laughs> yes uh, nice little jokes like that but yeah I did this is it this is why it's annoying now that I can't follow the information in it because there were so many lovely things like that and the I, lots of people have different theories on what the centre of the violent unknown event was, whether birds were responsible for it mm. um, allusions even to Tippy Hedron in the birds keeps cropping up as one of the assumed identities people can have if they want to stay anonymous. I've got to say there is so much to enjoy about this that I, I do really recommend it I mean I hope people do go and look for it I know Peter Greenaway can really irritate people but um what I'd say, Phil, you said you watched it in two hour and a half chunks. Yeah. I'd. This is just my personal thing, but I would say, and even Greenaway says there's no, um, there's no imperative to watch it all in one go now. I'd probably recommend watching it in thirty or even twenty minute chunks, and maybe treat it like a little. Okay, a little series. Like a HBO box set that you're just, <laughs> that you're just dipping into. Yeah. Um, yeah. Why not? What do you get when you cross a chicken with a cement mixer? A bricklayer. Okay, well, Phil, you wrote this, so you're going to bloody well read it out. Okay, and from the birds, the Beatles. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> Released in 1978, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band is a tale of Heartland USA's very own boy band, comprising Peter Frampton and the Bee Gees, descendants of Pepper's original band who performed as the Allies' most effective weapon in France during the Great War. The boys come under the greedy eye of music magnate B.D. Hoffler, Donald Pleasance, who wants them signed to his label and marketed as a supergroup. Sadly, the boys soon forget their wholesome roots and fall for the temptations of the big time. Meanwhile, Heartland rapidly spirals into a sleazy, materialistic cesspool thanks to Frankie Howard as Mr. Mustard, aided by two robot masseurs carrying out orders from the mysterious FBB who have megalomaniacal plans. Will the boys remember their honest small-town beginnings and thwart the evil plans of the FBB? Okay, well, I'm a very big fan of the Beatles. I'm not sure what you think of them, Phil. No, not really. Not really? No, um, not my bag. Although, having said that... Um, I, I'm not that much of a fan of the official Beatles movies. I mean, Hard Day's Night gets a lot of um, praise for being this, I don't know, uh, verite kind of thing. It always just looks like a grim bit of British black and white 60s-ness to me. Um, I do like Help. I think that's a lot of fun because it's the thing that's most like the monkeys, who I probably preferred as a kid. <laughs> Yellow Submarine. Uh, I'm a fan of animation, but even as a kid, the animation in that always looked very creepy to me. Yeah, that's. I was gonna say I do like Yellow Submarine. Yeah, and that's probably the reason I like it. Did it? Did it spook you good? Yeah, as a kid? it freaked me out as a kid. Yeah. Yeah, because they're so Glove. bulbous. They got these going back to the Cenobites, chattery teeth. Yes. And things. Yeah. Um, this is pretty notorious. In fact, for a long time, it wasn't available commercially. I think that's possibly something to do with uh, copyright and soundtrack. You can get it now as a Region One DVD, though. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the first time I even heard of this was in um, the Golden Turkey Awards books. Uh, it was there, they had this great photograph of the Bee Gees and Frampton and George Burns. And it, the way of, I think people will be familiar with the Golden Turkey Awards, the Medved brothers sneering from a, a great height on uh, films which were probably quite new at the time. But it, they did manage to make this sound so terrible. So um, I thought this was going to be at least hilariously bad. Um, what did you think of it? It was bad, don't get me wrong. Um, the worst part is like the film sort of side of it, the cinematic side of it, um, the acting, the performers kind of story that they've tried to cobble together by someone who's yeah, never written just, a script they've before. They've joined the dots from the lyrics. Of yeah, it. but 
I really liked the music. I really? thought the covers were great. I well, thought it worked really well. We sort of agree on a little bit of that because when I watched, like I said, to begin with, I was expecting this to be hilariously bad. But it starts off with the Bee Gees and Frampton doing these covers of the first couple of tracks on Sgt. Pepper. So, you know, that, that famous Sgt. Pepper song. And then a uh, little help for my friend. And I thought. And they're on they're, a bandstand. They're as on well. a bandstand, mm-hmm. and I think they're looking. They're they're looking good. Barry Gibb with a bass guitar really yeah. looks great on this. <laughs> yeah, he's and really like slap basing. Yeah, like level this 42 is great. And there's Morris on uh, late lamented Morris on the uh, on the drum kit. And I was thinking they're doing a really good job here. I was thinking, okay, this is probably going to be a really daft film, but there's going to be some good covers because the Bee Gees are good musicians and performers. George Martin, who was the, obviously the Beatles producer, is behind this. And I, I, there was a false dawn. I thought this is going to be really good. And then what's it immediately followed up with? George Burns singing uh, oh, Fixing a Hole. That was really bad. I mean, I've, I've made a note of like... Not watching WTF the rest of the film. WTF with like about 18 uh, question marks after it in my notebook. Oh, that was deplorable. Because, yeah, the whole film's a mixture of, uh, at the very least, competent musicians, uh, uh, very accomplished musicians in a lot of cases, then 70s celebrities. Um, I mean, George Burns' career goes way back, but the one I have to pick out, Donald Pleasance, horror stalwarts, horror Donald Pleasance. (laughs) A.K.A. horror stalwart. singing She's So Heavy from Abbey Road. Well, he only does a little bit of it, but um, my goodness. It's something to behold. I mean, Pleasance, like, to look at him is <laughs> it's amazing. He's got so much gold on. Well, he's great in this because there is, even though, yeah, um, George Burns as the mayor of Heartland, this mythical town in it, is the only person who delivers dialogue to kind of clarify the plot such as it is. The rest of it is conveyed totally through the lyrics of the Beatles, so we'll maybe move on to that, but you get some very uh, crowbarred kind of plot points and character names as a result of that. But yeah, the acting isn't great even from people who are just meant to be responding. So you do have the Bee Gees, no matter what else, how good they may be in other fields. I'm going on about British comedy all the time now. <laughs> Have you seen the Kenny Everett sketch when he's meant to be all three of the Bee Gees? Oh, no. They use video technology from the 70s to do But he does, uh, Kenny Everett in that, does do all of them separately, you know. And I realise now where he got Morris from there, because he just stands with his arms at his side and kind of cranes his head from side to side, <laughs> looking a bit muddled. And that's exactly how he is in this. Obviously, the Bee Gees are only meant to be responding to things in a broad, silent movie kind of way, but... Uh, well, yeah, I mean, that that's something that I gleaned quite early on. There's definitely a, a silent movie sort of aesthetic yeah. so like, you've just with got the subtitles. And... Big, face, uh, big expressions on people's faces, yeah. no subtlety well, whatsoever. Well, you've got big hair, big expressions, big Coke big, smiles. Big trousers. <laughs> but yeah, um, so Pleasance isn't an obvious choice for singing uh, talent, neither is Frankie Howard. I think this was the only film he if any American listeners out there this is the only thing you might know him from it was the last film he ever did apparently well there's a look I'm sure you read this there's a great Mm. quote from him saying this was meant to be like Saturday Night Fever but without the fever (laughs) yes I read that (laughs) Alice Cooper who's you know again I've got time for Alice Cooper but he here performs extraordinarily as father's son doing this weird version of it's a pretty quick cameo as well isn't it yeah I think he was probably filming Sextet with Mae West at the time (laughs) another amazing musical from the same year which uh, hopefully we'll we'll watch at some point if not cover Timothy Dalton singing in that is uh, really something that's that's the second James Bond who we know of the singing Bonds (laughs) I've got some others oh okay well we'll come on to that another time but I did want to say you mentioned when you were talking about the falls before Brass Eye Chris Morris's Brass Eye and there's a big photograph of Cooper's character in the background at one point, and he is the spitting image of Jez North, the paedophile from the paed- <laughs> yes. from the Pedageddon episode, the yeah. <laughs> which was it really. I was like, whoa! It jolted me. But yeah, I mean, you've got all these characters. Steve Martin's debut. Steve Martin is uh, well at the time he was a big star because he'd just done his wild and crazy guy kind of thing from Saturday Night Live. Mm. So this was the equivalent of God forbid Russell Brand or something now. <laughs> This was his author. (laughs) Oh no, because he's done other stuff, has he? He's done Mm, bits and pieces. Let's draw a veil over that. I don't want to give him any kind of. A veil, like a bag with uh, any. Let's draw a bag with some bricks in it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, so I'm I'm surprised to hear this. You enjoyed lots of the other cover versions in it. 
yeah I, I found that the music was toe tapping and it kept me involved uh, like I said I'm not a big fan of the Beatles so the they're not the stuff isn't sacrosanct to me yeah. at all it's, it was um, it was quite cool I was questioning the earth wind and fire involvement they just yeah. didn't seem to be well I think because they cover uh, gotta get you into my life and I think that was a hit single in its own right um, but what else was there I mean there was some soul versions there's uh, Billy Preston uh, oh get actually by. yeah we'll get on to Billy Preston we'll get on to him later okay. yeah because I did I did really like his uh, his turn <laughs> um but yeah, did you enjoy anything else about this then? Because it's a very expensive movie. I mean, it's a, again, um, the comparison ends here, but a bit like Sorcerer that we covered. Mm. You could imagine this being a massive... I think uh, it was $18 million. Yeah, which and is yet, again, totally unknown now. It's only known as a kitsch thing by those who uh, follow such things. <laughs> yeah. Who's this aimed at? Because it is like a family film, apparently, but there's explicit yeah. uh, drug references where people are just smoking joints smoking joints and also you can't help that because of the lyrics of some of the songs well quite but yeah this, this is absolutely why I had a problem with this I'm a big Beatles fan I don't mind people doing bad versions I quite enjoy it like I say I just you know I thought the Beatles wrote good songs so they're not pantheons of gods for me or anything the thing I really had against this movie was it was clumsily presenting this message that pursuit of money is an evil thing. Any villains in it, including Frankie Howard as Ha Ha, Mean Mr. Mustard, <laughs> who's not even that bad, is he? He no, has a couple no. of instruments, he's, you know, and he's a bit of a stooge. But um, he has these two robots who are a bit like Daft Punk. Yes, yeah. <laughs> well, they the do that, that the intro to uh, She's Leaving Home. They do the first bit at the end, like with a vocal. Yeah, sort which of... I think is the Bee Gees doing it. But yeah, it's vocoder version of this. Really... I really like that. <laughs> it's... That's my favourite song off the album anyway. Oh, really? The original That's album. the one I took off when I put it onto um, iPod. It oh, I love that. Like, skip that out and put yeah, some no, George I'm, Harrison on. I'm a sucker for some of the uh, emotional uh, heartstring pulling on that. Um, <laughs> But yeah, at the very beginning of the movie, the, the the new Sergeant Pepper's band, Bee Gees and Peter Frampton, perform for the town. The town love them. Um, they've got a history because of their ancestors. And yet then they get a telegram saying the biggest record company want you. And all the stress there from George Burns and the audience is, it's great, you're going to have so much money. Mm. You're going to become superstars. And the money will never stop. And there'll be so much money. And you think, oh, well, hold on. The message of this then is that money and um, adoration from people who don't know you is the best thing you can go for. And yet throughout it, the villains are meant to be villains because they have this message of we hate money. No, sorry, no, we, no. we hate love, we love money. So mm. a little bit of an oxymoron. But um, you think, well, what? How does that work? It's so clumsily done. And it's, it's very typical of Hollywood, really. Yeah. That's how you always represent someone as evil is they just they're materialistic. It's just a complete hypocrisy. Like yeah, even though it's being funded by a massive studio, mm, mm. and more often than not, any films which do have that message are likely to be uh, aimed at very small kids, and it's pushing a line of toys like the Care Bears or My Little Pony. So it's especially <laughs> cynical to do it. Like I said before, I I said about um, there must have been like a lot of coke smiles there. It it felt like that that it was coming from that era you know the disco era where i suppose if anyone's watched sort of movies based on that period of time there's always a talk about oh this is when coke started you know boogie yeah. nights uh blow those kind of films and, and it's it's that sort of um to use like cocaine as a metaphor basically you know it's that opulence it's that having the the balls to think, well, I can do this. Like, you know, like the producer was called um, the Australian chap, not Robert Stigwood. Uh, yeah, Stigwood. He huge... owned the rights to the Beatles songs. Yeah, and he he just done Saturday Night Fever with the Bee Gees. Yeah, and this was like, you know, he you mean he must have been on a high, <laughs> yeah, and he but... was just like, oh, the world's my my feet. I can do what I want. And again, I don't get this at all. Yeah, because it's Robert Stigwood producing it. I think they used even some of his. Um, cars and props in it you know um, and yet it's taking a direct swipe at uh, megalomaniacal music magnates the Donald Pleasant's character who's meant to be the sort of record company owner 
even the logo of his company is very much like Stigwood's. And yet, again, there's a confusion because he's meant to be this money-loving, coke-snorting sort of guy who's um, not necessarily presented as a good character, and yet he's never meant to be a villain either, is he? No, he's ambiguous. Though. The, the, there's... Well, I think you're being generous to say oh, that. I think okay, he's, okay. they've not bothered <laughs> defining him. No, no. I got confused by who was meant to be a corrupted character in this. <laughs> And I don't think that's me reading too much into a daft musical. You do even there need to have, more than ever actually, you need to have melodrama and you need to sort of define what the obstacles are. Well, it's funny you should say that because um, the guy who wrote it, Edwards, um, claimed that he wanted it to be an MGM musical, that sort of style, you know. The other night I was watching Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and the beginning of that, I'm sure you're pretty familiar, when it's at this um, nightclub in Anything is it Shanghai? Anything goes in Chinese, yeah. yeah. Mm. Although it then goes, even in the titles, into a bit of a fantasy with all these MGM dancers. MGM. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. And I thought, my God, this is really great, you know. I thought that was a fantastic sequence, and there's nothing comparable with that. No. With that in, in this. Now, this is all kind of set pieces that have been shoved together hoping to form some kind of uh, cohesive plot and failing absolutely miserably crumbling I do feel them. we're putting t- I do feel we're paying too much attention to this <laughs> yeah <laughs> we've missed the point obviously well no but no seriously what was the point it's horrible if um, no, alright it does have a couple of nice there's a couple of good Beatles covers I think particularly at the beginning but largely it's an insult <laughs> It's a pure money-making exercise, and yet it's really pushing this theme of, uh, you know, sticking to your small-town roots, and and yet then not sticking to that. I got really annoyed with this. Yeah, I can I can understand that. I mean, I didn't devote myself to it as entirely as you did, but uh, I can see why people wouldn't like it, and I think all the points that you're making or were I'm sort of helping you to make it half-heartedly <laughs> are valid but I think if you just take it as kind of bubblegum it's it's palatable you know it's, you can chew it and spit it out and forget no, about it it's too evil for bubblegum <laughs> uh, it's, it's really wrong I mean uh, you can edit this out if you I think I'm going off point you know the movie Hancock the Will Smith superhero thing yeah I don't care if I am spoiling this because you deserve to be sterilised if you enjoyed watching that film <laughs> Throughout that, he's the there's no way I'm editing this. He's <laughs> it's, it's some bum superhero in that Will Smith, but it, uh, there's a subplot in it of this charity that's not getting enough attention. And at the end, to show that he's a really nice guy, Will Smith then defaces the side of the moon with the, side of the, the symbol of this charity. And I thought, yeah, that's pretty typical Hollywood thinking, you know, you'll just deface the moon permanently, and yeah, there's no problem with that. And that's like this film, it's just such a muddled message by people who don't know what they're talking about like, yeah love and being nice that's okay money's evil but success is really great <laughs> and I, well what but there is one thing I did really like about it and yeah Billy we Preston. mentioned this Billy Preston which is um, possibly the clip I may have enticed you with because it is on YouTube but um, again you can't spoil this because it's there's not much of a plot but he uh billy preston um who's kind of the nearest thing to any of the beatles in this because he played keyboards on um the let it, let it be album yeah um he crops up as a magical weather vane at the end um <laughs> dressed in this extraordinary getup. it's kind of a marching band outfit made from gold silk with cuban heel boots and he's jiving around and yeah it is hilarious but he does give a really good performance of get back and he's really energetic and it kind of salvages things a little bit towards the end before the final insult oh there's yeah because at the end they have everyone don't they yeah they that's, have the, that's what sort I'm talking of like about the college photograph almost yeah it's meant to be a tip of that towards the Sergeant Pepper cover when you've got all these legendary figures around there but instead of Alistair Crowley and um, William Burroughs yeah <laughs> you've got uh, Tina Turner Dame Edna Everidge Johnny Winter and did we say Robert Palmer yeah Robert Palmer's there looking as well. kind of like David Bowie at his most coked <laughs> he really doesn't look like he knows what's happening to him. He it. probably didn't. <laughs> no. But, uh, oh my lord. Um, but at the ending of that, when all those uh, pop stars from the 70s and pop culture figures, oh, awful. If anything, I really wish the Cenobites from Hellraiser would have appeared and just done with them all. 
<laughs> tear their souls apart. Yeah, that would have been uh, if someone can use Photoshop or some kind of uh, modern <laughs> software to do that. I would sit through the whole film again just to watch Doug Bradley appear and uh, and tear their souls the, the apart. The Cenobite dogs let loose. <laughs> Release the dog's <laughs> pinhead. <laughs> I want you. I want you so bad. I want you. I want you so bad. It's driving me mad. It's driving me mad. Okay, that's the end of the show again. Um, I hope you enjoyed listening to it. It was particularly fun for me covering such a, a range of uh, varied films you're off to buy some Donald Pleasance albums now <laughs> I'm sure he's got some on iTunes somewhere lurking MC Pleasance yeah. um, <laughs> that is the end of the show so um, thanks for listening and do follow us on various multimedia methods now we have a website midnight-video.com or please do email us with any, any sort of feedback or suggestions midnightvideo at hotmail.co.uk or we're on Twitter as well at Midnight Video and also don't forget we're on Facebook which we mentioned at the beginning of the programme so you can join in discussions there like us, send videos and just write general crap on our page um, and also if you go onto iTunes and subscribe to us and maybe leave some feedback there that'd yeah, be much please do. That would be yeah that would be fantastic and little comments and ratings and take us out of the new and recommended but <laughs> I don't know put us in with the greats <laughs> but yeah that is the end of the show and after all of that sort of faux Beatles Phil I wouldn't mind listening to some real Beatles oh, I, I, I'm afraid I don't have all four no just one maybe just the one okay then take it away Ringo <laughs> Just a short break and they'll be back on stage ready to do it to you one more time.